Hi everyone, my name is Lauren Jacobson. I'm shooting from my bedroom in Rosemount. I have some scripture I'd love to read to you today. The scriptures today are Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40, NIV translation. The Greatest Commandment Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on to these two commandments. Well, welcome. My name is Rob Jacobson. If we haven't met yet, if you're new on our live stream, would you just go ahead and write in the comments that you're here. We would love to say hi to you. We'd love to connect with you. Um, you'll notice uh, also that we have a live stream going on our website as well as the Facebook. So that's kind of cool. And what a great Father's Day gift. I got to see my daughter uh, recite the scripture. So thank you, Lauren. Well, as we get started today, I, I just want to dive right in. So we're starting a new series called Love Thy Neighbor. As you can guess, we'll be talking about neighbors and love. So, Jesus said one time a rather famous quote, and it came from the Old Testament, the, the scriptures that they had. He said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But then he changed it. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And no one ever asked Jesus, who's my enemy? I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but nobody does, because enemies are much more obvious than neighbors. But someone did once ask Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus' answer to that question has become one of the most famous teachings of all time. It's so famous, in fact, that I was a little worried you might not listen to it because maybe you've heard it before. But as a remedy to that, I just want to ask some questions and have you ponder them today. So who are your neighbors? Like, literally and seriously, who are the people who live near you? Do you know them? Do you know their names? Not just wave as they go by, but do you know who lives in the houses, the apartments, or the condos next to you? Do you know what kind of music they like? If you live in an apartment, the answer is probably yes. Um, but do you know what kind of food they like? Have you ever been in their home? And have you ever invited them into your home? And if you're a person of faith, do you pray for them? And if you follow Jesus, do you reflect Jesus to them? Would they know by your words and your actions that you're a Jesus follower? Some hard questions that deserve pondering. Well, one day there was a scholar that stood up to test Jesus. Now, in Jesus' time, the way that you tested people, the way that you had conversations were called these Socratic circles. So the person that was kind of the head teacher was seated, and oftentimes the rest of the people were seated. But then when someone wanted to have their turn to talk, they would stand up. So this man stood up, and were given the, the scholar's motive. The narrator says that. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Like, his question is, maybe could be rephrased, how can I participate in the kingdom of God? 
And like good Socratic circles, Jesus answers his question with a question. Well, what is written in the law? And he says to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's from Deuteronomy 6, chapter 5, or chapter 6, verse 5, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19, 18. And like Lauren read in Matthew 22, 40, it says the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Everything that God wrote had us right in the law, in the history, and through God's prophets are wrapped up into these two great commandments. In fact, they've been called the greatest commandment. It's a commandment that's so important it should grab our attention and our passion and our enthusiasm. But it can also be a challenge for us. It sure was for this religious expert Because he gave Jesus book, chapter, and verse for this commandment. But even with his question, he knows the kingdom of heaven is more than having the right answers. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right answers have to be followed with right actions. And Jesus agrees. He says, you've answered right. Do this and you will live. But that's difficult, right? It's easier to argue with Jesus or it's easier to argue on social media about what is loving and what's not loving. And the Bible scholar realizes this too. Because again, we're given the narrator's, or the narrator gives us the scholar's motive because he wants to justify himself. And so he says, and who is my neighbor? I know I'm supposed to love God and love others like myself, but who exactly does that include? How far out does that have to go? What do I have to do? To understand Jesus' response to this, because he does give a question to this question. He does it at the end of this scandalous story. But to really understand the story, we have to understand the culture of Jesus' day and the social structure of Jesus' day. So take a look at this picture that we'll put up. This is a hierarchy of the Jewish social structure. It, you'll see that it starts with the priest in the middle and then the Levite, and then it goes out through various people and cultures in that time. And, and this was reflected in all of society. So when people stood up to read in the synagogue, a priest read first, a Levite read second, and then a local Jew read third. That's how it was done. And so what the, what the scholar was asking Jesus was, how far out do I have to go? How far out does this word neighbor include? And so Jesus says, a certain man, and then he'll come and say, a certain priest and a certain Levite. There's no names because, again, when Jesus tells this parable, he wants his audience to put themselves in the story. So we need to put ourselves in the story. He says there's a certain man. So in other words, a man like you, a man like me. And he was going down to Jericho, and he was beaten to a bloody pulp by a group of thieves. He was left dying in a ditch. In fact, he probably will die without medical attention. These are enemies. The thieves are obviously enemies. They're easy to see. And the road between Jerusalem and Jericho is rocky. It's hilly. It's treacherous. There's caves. Lots of people hide there. It's 
the road's name was the way of blood. So this would have been a very believable story. Just picture somewhere dangerous that you can think of. That's what Jesus is talking about. And I think we can see in our world today that this kind of active hate still happens today. But when we see it, that act of hate is a lot easier to call out than the other kind of hate that we'll look at, the passive hate. This one slides under our radars. It's harder for us to call out. Jesus says then, by chance, a priest was going down the road. Notice the social hierarchy again. Of course, Jesus would start with a priest because they're the top of the pyramid of this hierarchy. Thankfully, a priest is walking down the road because the priest is the ideal example. They will show us exactly what we're to do. But the priest sees the man or the dead man and walks by on the other side. And the Levite too, Jesus gives him almost no uh, length of meat in the story. He just says, so too, the Levite sees the man and walks by on the other side. And the people would have been curious. They would have been wondering. I mean, they know the religious rules that, that no one is supposed to touch a dead corpse or a dead person because they would be ceremonial or religiously unclean. In fact, the rabbinic texts tell, instruct people to keep at least six feet away from a corpse. But Jews were also required on religious count, grounds to bury neglected corpses. So if this guy is dead, even though the priest or the Levite's not supposed to touch the person, they are supposed to bury the person. So whether the victim is dead or half dead, they have an obligation to respond. Because not even the purity laws, the ceremonial cleanliness laws, could keep someone from saving a life. All through the stories in the Old Testament and what Jesus talks about, even on the Sabbath, is your, if your donkey falls in a hole, you're supposed to get the donkey out so it doesn't die. And you're so much more valuable than that donkey. That's the, the religious law, the ceremonial laws were suspended in terms of saving a life. See, the priest and the Levite have the right head knowledge, but they don't have the right heart response. And so everyone listening to Jesus' story would know, oh, he's going to talk about a local Jew, someone from Jericho or someone from Jerusalem. And so they're waiting for it. And all of a sudden, Jesus skips down. And with three words, he makes this so much more than about being afraid of what to do or being ceremonial defiled. He says, but a Samaritan. Now, I don't know how to make this come through a screen just so shockingly enough. The, the closest thing I can think of is that a person of color was walking down the streets of Minneapolis one night and he was robbed by a Mexican gang and beaten and a white supremacist just happened to show up on the scene and respond to help. I mean, that's the, the closest thing I can think of that would give the same kind of shock value to the people of Jesus' day with the words, but a Samaritan. See, the Samaritan had way more to fear than the Jewish people in the story. The Samaritan, if they're going from Jerusalem to Jericho, they're in Jewish land. If something were to happen, they would not be treated fairly. They would probably treat it be treated unequally and unjustly. And so they have to watch out for where they are or what they're doing. 
But when he came to the victim, Jesus says, the Samaritan saw him and took pity on him. He saw and he felt with compassion for another human being made in God's image who was in need. And he went to him. He poured oil and wine on his wounds. He put the man in his transportation or on his transportation and brought him to an inn, the closest thing to a hospital of that day, and ensured that he was cared for with his own money. Now, Samaritans and Jews hated each other. They had been hating each other for 700 years because 700 years before this, when the Jews were exiled from their promised land, some of those Jews intermarried with other ethnic groups. It didn't start out being about race. It actually started out being about faith because they married people who worshiped false gods. So then when they had children, their children grew up looking different and acting different and knowing and sometimes worshiping these false gods. And the Jews who stayed pure, they eventually deemed the Samaritans impure. See, what started out as an issue of faith became about an issue of race. Just my thought. I think maybe that's where race started. And so the Samaritans were hated by the Jews, and they did what we all do when someone hates us. We often, our response is to hate right back. See, the Samaritan guy would have been hated by the Jewish man, and his actions would likely not have been reciprocated. But he felt compassion for another human being, even though he was from a different race. See, how could two people of faith see someone in need and walk right by? That's what we're going to explore in this series called Love Thy Neighbor. And we're, we're going to look at it, not to guilt or shame you, but to openly talk about the challenges, the barriers, if you will, to loving people like Jesus loves people. Because when we do regather and return and relaunch as a church, I want us to excel at loving God and loving others. So today we're just going to spend a few more minutes looking at one of these barriers. It's the barrier that quite possibly kept the two people of faith who practice and recite this special Jewish prayer, the Shema from Deuteronomy 6.5, to love God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and all their strength. They recite that twice a day, and yet they fail to show what that love command means. And that barrier is what I call the bias barrier. And by Jesus showcasing a hated religious, or a hated racial group, I think he's highlighting the bias barrier in the story. See, bias can be defined as prejudice in favor of or against one thing or person or group compared to another, usually in a way that's considered unfair. It's disproportionate weight in favor of one thing or another that is closed-minded or unfair or prejudice. The bias barrier causes us to ask Jesus, like the lawyer did in the story, who is my neighbor? How far out into circles that are different than me do I have to go? Jesus followers, as Jesus followers, 
we are called to love our neighbors. We don't get to decide who's a neighbor. We just have to decide if we'll be a neighbor. So how do we break through this barrier and love those people that are different than us? Well, I think the first thing we have to do is we have to ask the Holy Spirit to expose our bias. If bias is prejudice, we have to recognize our prejudices. And that's difficult to do because our prejudice is often a blind spot. It's like when we go try on clothes. Remember when we used to try on clothes? Yeah, maybe we'll get to do that someday. But we go to try on clothes and there's just one mirror. And so we're, we're constantly like, oh, how does this look? And we can't see. We need like those mirrors with the extra mirrors. Or, or what's even better is someone else standing there in our blind spot telling us truthfully how it looks. Because again, it's hard for us to see. It's often a lack of perspective or exposure or just ignorance. You know, I've heard people say racism isn't born, it's learned. There's not like a racist gene that we get. If you have ever had a two-year-old or you have a two-year-old now, you'll know they don't hate people. They hate naps and maybe one specific vegetable, maybe more, but... They never learn to hate someone because of the color of their skin. That's something that's learned. And, and unfortunately, it's something that's also taught. Maybe you grew up hearing things like, oh, in our family, we don't hang out with those people. We don't go into that neighborhood. It's a bad neighborhood. Oh, the crime rate in that part of town. Oh, that school. No, we don't go there. That's why it's handed down from generation to generation. Why else does it feel like we're repeating the 1960s? Racial bias is sin. It's wrong. James 2.9 tells us that if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You're guilty of breaking the law. So if you say things like, oh, I, I like you, I hang out with you because you look like me, or you like the same music as I do, or, you know, my kids like to play with your kids because they're the same, or we're close enough in socioeconomic status. I'm not talking about just having preferences. We can have preferences on our music, but bias towards people is sin. We got to call it what it is. Are you willing to admit that you have some prejudice? I know I do. I have some preconceived opinions that are not based on reason or actual experience, and I have to expose them. You know, one thing that I've seen more recently in me, and especially in people who are white, is when race conversations come up or racial injustice comes up, people get really defensive really fast or really quiet, really fast. And if they get quiet, they don't say anything. But if they get defensive, they say th things like, well, I don't see people of color, I just see people. I love everyone. Well, I work with people of color, or I have friends who are pe people of color, so, so I'm okay. You know, I judge people by what they do, not what they look like. Or I grew up in a small rural community. I was sheltered. I never learned anything about race. I, I've said a few of those things. I, I have now learned that 
I learned a whole lot about race in a small rural community. I just didn't know it. If you're willing to admit you have some prejudice, can you admit that you have some racial bias? Like, when you're talking to someone who looks different or thinks different or acts different, do you think that they might be right and you might be wrong? Can we hold our thoughts loosely, especially when they're first being formed? But even after that, can we be flexible enough to welcome in new information? And are we willing to give people the benefit of the doubt when we don't understand their actions? Ooh, maybe I misspoke. Maybe I had a bad day. I don't want to judge someone as quickly as having evil intent because that might mean they could do the same to me. That's some of the work of uncovering bias. So that's what you have to do first. You have to recognize those prejudices, uncover that bias. But then we have to ask God to see and feel like the Samaritan did. We have to feel with compassion. Maybe some of you saw this week out there in social media, Phil Vischer, the co-creator of VeggieTales. He packs in about 100 years of race challenges into 15 or 16 or 17 minutes. And it is informative, accurate, and powerful. It's worth your time to watch. Maybe we can even put it in the comments. But I just want to give you the end of that video because I think it is so powerful. He says, I'm not here to tell you what the right solutions are because I don't know. I'm just here to ask you to do one thing. It's the thing that begins every journey to a solution to every problem. Care. To feel with compassion. That's what it means to care. When you or I see inherent injustices in our political or social systems, do we stop to consider how our society might be structured to harm others? When we see injustice, do we call it out? Do we seek change? That's what it means to feel with compassion. Are we willing to listen to experiences to people of color and gain empathy? My my family and my friend, uh, we went to a listen and learn session uh, two weeks ago, and we got to hear about a dozen stories of people of color. It was informative. It was helpful. It was powerful. We've got to learn to draw on a wide range of voices. And, it, and hear this. If you have been a target of racism you have the right to question why I haven't been concerned about the negative impact it has on you. That's what I think Jesus was doing when he tells this story about the Samaritan who's the good neighbor. So what do we do? We expose our bias. We feel with compassion. And then we do what, what is hinted at when David cries out to God for mercy and protection from wicked people in Psalm 28. In Psalm 28.3, he says, Do not drag me away with the wicked, those who do evil, those who speak friendly words to their neighbors while planning evil in their hearts. Notice how David defines wicked people. Those who speak nicely to their neighbors but have evil in their hearts. See, David wants us to see what Jesus wants us to see in his story of the Good Samaritan, that God doesn't separate 
who we are from what we do. God cares about what's in our heart and what motivates and guides us, but also our actions. So the lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus' question is, who was the neighbor in the story? Which implies the question really is, what kind of neighbor are you? What kind of neighbor am I? See, a bad neighbor would say, if I stop to help this person, what will happen to me? And the good neighbor says, if I don't stop to help this person, what will happen to them? Friends, Jesus compels us to love with action. It's the last thing we have to do. It's the third thing we have to do. We can't just feel. We've got to love with action. See, the Samaritan's actions were a true, true demonstration of love because he had no prior relationship with the wounded man. He wouldn't gain anything materially from helping this person. In fact, he would lose time and money. And the wounded man, like I said before, would probably not reciprocate if the situation was reversed. But racism isn't just the presence of hatred. It's the absence of love. It's this passive hate that we've got to fight. Yes, love is more than feelings. Certainly love is an emotion. It can be passion. It can be joy. It can be the butterflies in your stomach before you call your crush. Do people still do that? I don't know. But Jesus didn't sit around and tell people he had positive feelings for them. He didn't sit down and say, hey, you, I think you're really neat. I have positive feelings in my heart about you. I mean, maybe he did and we just didn't record it, but I think it's not in there because Jesus didn't help people experience his love by describing his feelings. He showed them his love with obedience and action. Like Matthew said at the beginning of the service, Jesus says, I glorify my father by doing what he asks me to do. Wherever I see my father working, that's where I work. So I wonder, friends, if we can internalize this, especially in this season. Jesus says in John 15, this is my command, to love each other as I have loved. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And how far do friends go? Well, again, our job isn't to define who's a friend and who's a neighbor. It's just to extend that love out further and further and further. So we've got to expose our bias. We've got to see and feel with compassion. And then we have to love with action. Because racism, again, isn't just the presence of hatred. It's the absence of love. So we need to ask God for a new heart and a new spirit. The prophets promised and predicted that one day that we would get a new heart and a new spirit in this time. And when we do, we would be able to love like God loves. Jesus is the one who showed us that love. And Jesus is the one who gave us the new heart and the new spirit when he didn't just come for us, but he died for us. And when God raised him from the dead, he released us and conquered death. And we now have the ability to have a new heart and a new spirit by the Holy Spirit. And we can be part of the solution, part of the way that we love with action. We can live so changed by the love of God that we love one another.
So how will you break through this bias barrier? Because it doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what your background is. You are welcome in God's family. Far be it from me or anyone else to tell you you're not in the family. You are welcomed and you are loved. So God, you join me in prayer. God, will you help us never ever forget who we are and whose we are and who you've called us to be that you have created every person in this world. You've made them in your image and you invite them to be in your family. God, we want to be in your family. May we be thankful. May we realize that you invite us and may we accept that invitation wherever we are, whatever we've done. If we've never said yes to you, Jesus, we say yes to you today. We write it in the comments. We say, I'm committing my life to Christ. I want that new heart and that new spirit so that I can love my family, God, your family well. And when one family member is mistreated or overlooked or hurt, I will go out of my way to show them your love, God. Help me to see and to feel. And ultimately, God, help me to cross the street. Holy Spirit, will you show us the streets that we need to cross today, the streets that we need to cross this week to be your people and to show your love. Amen.